The last night of the gospel meeting is always the most difficult for me because I'm so worried that I'm going to fail to express my appreciation for someone. And I feel the same way tonight. You know, time flies when you're having fun, and it especially flies when the meeting ends on a Wednesday night. This has just gone by so quickly. And I, I feel like I've, I've started growing, uh, feeling so close to so many of you, and, and it's time to go home. And I'll be honest with you, I'm excited about going home because I'm really missing Jennifer and the kids. So it, it is a, a mixed emotions right now. But I am just so thankful that I was able to be here for a few days with you, uh, to participate in, in the proclamation of the gospel with, uh, with you as a congregation, to get to know you better, become, uh, to become acquainted with you, and to see the good work that you're doing here. Uh, every day I've, I've called Jennifer and told her how encouraged I've been by the people that I've met and, and just by the worship and everything that's going on. And, and I think it just topped it off uh, this morning when Addison was baptized. It uh, something all the brethren back in Blue Springs, Missouri, were rejoicing in. Uh, so it's, uh, it's just wonderful, the work, uh, the power of God's Word and, and what it does in our lives. And we see that uh, definitely this week. Uh, I, I thank the elders for uh, the invitation again. I appreciate it so much. I had not met Brother Bowen, but uh, a close acquaintance. I, I count his uh, nephew, Trevor, and Trevor's wife, Martha, back in Athens, Alabama, to be dear friends of mine. And that was kind of the connection that we had, but I, I've been looking forward to meeting Simon and his family. And of course, now I've gotten to know, of course, uh, Bob and his family and uh, Alan, and, and then so many of you, it's, it's um, it, it, what's wonderful about it is it's an experience that I'm able to take back home and say, you know, I really appreciated what they did there at Oak Mountain and how they did this. And uh, there's things that we learn from each other and things that we're lifted up and encouraged by. And uh, one of the things that, that I, I appreciate about gospel meetings is that I get my batteries recharged just being around brethren and seeing the, the struggles and the joys, uh, the victories and, and the difficulties. And so I, I'm going to take all that home with me and be better because of it. So I, I thank you for all of that. For those of you who have uh, provided meals, opened your homes, taken me out, uh, your generosity and your hospitality is just wonderful and, and uh, exactly what I would expect in Alabama. Uh, I wanna thank the song leaders like Brother Hutto did. Uh, you've just done an outstanding job. This church is blessed with wonderful song leaders and wonderful participation in the song worship for all your prayers, uh, absolutely everything. Uh, so I, I bid all of you Godspeed as I, I will be parting from you and uh, flying home tomorrow. And I, I hope that our paths will cross again. Uh, but but I, I think the only thing that could be better than that is for the Lord to return and we all get to be together forever and never have to say goodbye again. Uh, I truly look forward to that. Uh, but until that time comes, I, I pray that you will keep on keeping on in the Lord. You know, sometimes uh, I, I have this experience where I, I may maybe hear a, a radio pundit, someone maybe on a podcast that makes an observation, someone who's not even a Christian, but they make this a profound observation about life and about the world. And, and many times it's something that is a, a biblical truth. And I think to myself, wow, I wish I would have said that, you know, that's good. And, and that, that happens to us sometimes that it, it's almost strange that people who are otherwise kind of worldly make observations about life. It's actually a truth that God brings out and something that we ought to know, but sometimes we forget. 
You know that people of the world sometimes are able to see some things that we fail to see and have to be reminded of. I'm thinking about in Titus chapter 1, and in verses 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul said in verse 12, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Then in verse 13, he said, This testimony is true. You know, what Paul was saying is, they got it right. One of their own prophets is able to make an observation about the people on this island that is absolutely accurate. Jesus in Luke 16 and in verse 8, he said in Luke 16 and in verse 8, that the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. On some occasions, he was speaking about one in particular, but on some occasions, the sons of this world sometimes have an astute observance of things that Children of God ought to be able to see, and they fail to see. You know, I had an experience kind of like that uh, back in 2004, and I know I'm taking us way back uh, when I go back that far, about 17 years. But back in 2004, there was a song that came out. It was released in the, toward the end of August in 2004 by Tim McGraw, and the song was entitled, Live Like You Were Dying. Now, the song was actually written by a couple of other fellas, but it stayed at number one on the charts for like seven weeks, won a Grammy, it, and if you're old enough, I, I think everybody here has probably heard it at least once. And, and the, the idea behind the song was uh, the, this guy that had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, and he is telling a, a, a younger man that, that when he found out that he was going to die was when he really, truly started to live. And he urged this young man to live every day like he was dying. And his point was that that's when he began to simplify his life and, and really find the things that brought true gratification, not just the amassing of wealth and, and other things like that. Now, the song approaches the subject of living like you were dying from somewhat of a temporal standpoint. It, it uh, suggests that we might go skydiving or mountain climbing or even ride a bull in order to take in the joy of life. Uh, and, and there's certainly nothing inherently wrong with any of those things, and that might be on your list if you found out that you didn't have long to live. But I just don't think it would be at the top of the list for a Christian who has an eternal perspective of our existence. I think there would be some other things that would come first. Now, to be fair, and if, I, I'm sure that you've all heard the song, it, it also it goes on and, and suggests that we find time for aging parents and be the husband that we ought to be and, and that we love with a sweet, genuine love, that we use a, a kinder and sweeter words in our conversation, even read the Bible. And, and it was all of these thoughts that as I was hearing this song, I was thinking to myself, wow, I, I mean, that's profound. I, here's this incredibly worldly guy that's singing something that is a biblical thought. And it made me think about in 2 Kings chapter 20 and in verse 1, when the Lord through Isaiah the prophet said to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. You think about that message, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. What does it mean to set your house in order? Well, it obviously means that there's a certain way that we're going to live or conduct our lives when we know that we're going to die. In other words, first things become much more apparent. And we're going to respect the true priorities when we know we have a short amount of time to live. 
Yes, this is a, a, a tremendous biblical principle. Live like you were dying. You know, the Bible teaches us that we actually are dying in the sense that we're winding down toward death every day. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 16, the Bible tells us we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing. Now, I want you to think about what that's saying. Our outward man is perishing. We're all dying. I know that that's hard to comprehend when you're young because you are still in the bloom of your life. You're getting bigger and stronger and more beautiful every day. And so it's hard to think I'm dying. I mean, you, you feel like you're, you're actually ascending and you are, but it's all a part of that process of our outward body perishing. This is the reality of it. We're all dying. We all have an appointment with death. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it is appointed for men to die. And so what, what I'm getting at here is that in order for us to live like we are dying, we have to realize that we are dying. And you know, when, when you listen to that song, I, I think what most of us do is we take ourselves and try to put ourselves in those shoes and say, wow, what if I got that diagnosis? What if I were to find out, you know, I've got a physical coming up. What if I find out that I've only got weeks or months to live? And what I'm telling you this evening is you do only have weeks or months to live. I, I don't know how many, but you're dying. The point is we all have a terminal illness and it's called mortality. We're all dying. And, and we, we look at it from the standpoint of someone who's received a diagnosis from a doctor. You know, I, I remember an occasion, and it was about a year before this song came out, my best friend's dad was diagnosed with cancer. And one of his buddies, and uh, he was a much younger man, but uh, they, they bought and sold horses together, and they were just good friends. And, and this younger man was the chief of police in the little farm town that I grew up in. And I remember hearing about how when news came to him that Brother David Cook was diagnosed with cancer and, and that he didn't have long to live, that this, this fire chief, he, he, just, he just wept. He said, my, my buddy, I'm, I'm going to lose my buddy. I just can't believe this. David Cook made it for about 24 months. The fire chief died a month later of a massive heart attack in his 40s. You see, sometimes we look at a situation where someone's been diagnosed, we think, oh, they don't have long to live, and we may not know that we have less time to live because we're all dying. The person who's diagnosed with a terminal illness simply knows a little more accurately when they're dying. But we are all terminal. So when we think about live like you were dying, the Bible is saying that very thing. First of all, it's saying you are dying. And then secondly, it's telling us that we don't know when we're going to die. You know, in James chapter four, in verses 13 through 14, James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. That's what life is. Whether you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness or not, 
you have no idea what tomorrow holds. And so because of that, he tells us in verse 17 that we need to live every day as if it were our last. And that's why verse 17, after he says, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Verse 17, he says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. He's saying, you know that you're dying. You know that there's some things that you need to do. And so if you don't do them, you're going to be held accountable for it. You need to live every day as, is, as if this is the last opportunity I'll ever receive to do this. Whether it's sharing the gospel with a friend or being obedient to the gospel. You need to live every day as if it were your last. Because it may be. You know, Charles Spurgeon, a very famous denominational preacher from yesteryear, he once said that men have been helped to live by remembering that they must die. I wonder if the writer of Tim McGraw's song had read that at some point, because that's exactly what the song is saying. Men have been helped to live by remembering that they must die. But that's exactly what the Bible says. Look in the 39th Psalm. In the 39th Psalm in verses 4 through 6, I want you to notice the psalmist there, the 39th Psalm in verses 4 through 6. He says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Now, now note, the psalmist is not necessarily saying, tell me how long I have to live, Lord, because I, I want to have as much fun as I can and then right at the end I'm going to obey you. That's not, that's not what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, I want you to make me conscious every day of how short life is. He wasn't saying, make me to know the number of my days so that I can know exactly how long I have to live. He's saying, make me aware of how few days this life has. Whether I live to be 40-something or 80-something, in the whole scheme of things in eternity, it's really not much difference. The psalmist is saying, make me constantly aware of that. He goes on, he says, so that I may know how frail I am. That's what James is talking about. Now, verse 5 of the 39th Psalm, Indeed, you've made my days as handbreadths. My age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Verse 6, surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Men have been helped to live by remembering that they must die. The number of our days, they're but handbreadths. In the 90th Psalm and in verse 12, the psalmist said, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What's the wisdom that we need to gain from that? Again, he's not saying, tell me exactly how many days I'm going to live. He's saying, teach me to assess how short life really is. Again, I know when we're young, it seems like it's going to be forever, you know, before we graduate from high school. You know, it seems like it's going to be forever before the next holiday comes or spring break or whatever, but it's really not. And the older that we get, the faster it feels like time goes. It doesn't speed up. It's just that we're becoming more aware of how short life is and how few days we have. 
And that's a good thing. We need to be aware of that because it helps us to realize the vanity of the things that people pursue of a temporal nature. It helps us to realize, to gain that heart of wisdom and to know that we need to be living every day as if it were our last. The, 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 the point is that even we look back at this song that I started talking about, Live Like You Were Dying, the, the secular song, and, and the point of that is that even from a temporal view of things, because that song is definitely from a temporal view of things, but even from a temporal view of things, it's more rewarding to live like you were dying. And that's because when you simplify your life, you start living for things that bring lasting fulfillment. Having time for your aged parents, spending more time with your kids, the simple things. Many of us are old enough to remember when life was a lot simpler. There was no internet, there was no social media, no one had a phone in their hand, unless it was attached to a cord, and they were usually in the kitchen. And they put it down as fast as they could, and they got back outside and visited and cranked the homemade ice cream. And you know, I mean, we, life was simple, and it was much more gratifying, I'm telling you. And so even from a temporal view of things, that's the case. But if it's true in regard to the temporal things of life, how much more true for the Christian who has a spiritual view of life and a firm conviction of the judgment day? That's what I want you to consider with me. And so the question then is how would we live if we were dying? How, what would change in your life you know that the wise man in Ecclesiastes 7 and in verse 12 said, it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. You know why? He said, because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. We, we gain that heart of wisdom. So I, I want you to take to heart the fact, in, in a sense, go to that house of mourning. Think about your end of days. How would you live tonight, the rest of this evening? How would you live tomorrow if it were your last? Well, let's say you had through this weekend. What would be first on your list in the next few days? That's what I'm wondering. Would your life be lived any differently if you found out tonight that you didn't have long to live? And whatever it would be that you would do, you need to start doing that right now. You see, the reason that this song resonated so much with me and had such an impact on me is because I said it came out at the end of August in 2004, and it was just a few weeks later I was in a gospel meeting in Conway, Arkansas. And it was Wednesday of the meeting, and I had, I had gone to lunch with one of the elders, and my wife called during lunch, and her father, my father-in-law, who had preached for about 20 years there at 84th Street in Oklahoma City, where I, I grew up. My dad was an elder there. He had been very sick, and we didn't know what was wrong. He was still in his early 50s, but, but something was wrong. And, and so he, he had an appointment with the doctor that day. She called and she said, Brett, they think that my dad is diabetic. And, and we talked about it. That, while that's a serious thing, it can be controlled, and, and we knew what to pray about, and so we were glad we at least knew. So I got off the phone and, and we went on through our day. And that afternoon I was back at the house where I was staying and going over my notes, getting ready for, for the sermon that evening. And I got another call from my wife, but this time she was sobbing 
so deeply that she could barely speak, and all she could get out was, Dad has pancreatic cancer. My best friend's dad had just died of pancreatic cancer a month before. My father-in-law had preached his funeral, had visited him in the hospital every day, and had no idea he was eaten up with the same cancer. He was so sick at the funeral he couldn't do the graveside and ask me to do it. I don't understand things like that, you know. I immediately booked her a flight from Lubbock, Texas to Oklahoma City. I flew right back, picked up the kids. We drove to Oklahoma City and we got the news that he had weeks, maybe months to live. It had spread to his liver. He was only 54 years old. And I was hearing that song over and over again, live like you were dying. My father-in-law passed away eight weeks later, November 25th, Thanksgiving morning at 7 a.m. with my wife and her sister at his bedside, so quickly. And in those eight weeks, probably almost the last half of those, maybe the last fourth, he was so sick, he wasn't able to do anything. But in, in the first half of that time, I saw my godly, wonderful father-in-law who had lived such a righteous life, I saw him raise some priorities and start doing some first things first. And it made me so conscious. And I began to think as I would leave and run in errands for, for Jennifer and, and for my father-in-law and pick things up. And every time I got in the car, it seemed like that song was playing. And I thought, I'm seeing that play out before me. I'm watching my father-in-law live every day like it's his last. And I need to take that to heart. How would I live if I had that same diagnosis, which I do? And I began to target some things, and this is like what I did the lesson we looked at on Sunday. I, I said, what, would I, what do I need to do? What would I do? And, and essentially what I was asking is, what would God put at the top of my bucket list? And, and certainly, like I said, there's nothing wrong if someone knows they don't have long to live and they want to go on a trip with their wife and do these things. All that's great. But, but what would be the first things that we'd be taken care of? And, and as I thought about that, I, I thought, well, I'll tell you. How would I live if I were dying? The very first thing that I would be mindful of is I would make absolutely sure that I had repented of each and every sin. I would be so sensitive and conscious of whatever it is that I needed to make right. And that would be to some degree because of the fear of judgment. I, I think that we've all experienced that at one time or another. Something might have happened and maybe it was a close call and we began to think back, would I be ready? Did I, have I taken care of everything? And, and it's that, that the seriousness of, of bowing the knee before the God of, of heaven and earth, the judge of all mankind. Am I ready for that? You know, the Bible tells us about the seriousness of that in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, he tells us there in verses 5 through 6, Colossians chapter 3, I want you to notice in verses 5 through 6 where he's telling us uh, about the, the judgment. And he says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, 
covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Yes, we'd be very conscientious about, about that. I think about 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That would be on my mind if I knew I had just a short time to live. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. And notice in verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, I, I, would, I would take care of those things, wouldn't you? And, and my point here is that I think that all of us would stop compartmentalizing sin. Do you know what I mean by that? Compartmentalization is what we do, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a very effective thing, because sometimes in life there's some things that we don't need to be distracted by. And you know, when, when uh, uh, we come home from work, we need to take those, those cares and those concerns about work, and, and we need to compartmentalize them. We put them in a shoebox and put them up on the shelf, and we're not going to think about those things. We're going to be with our family. We're going to focus on the things that we need to focus about, and tomorrow morning we'll get that box down. All those things will still be there, and, and we'll go on about our day. That's compartmentalization. But here's the problem. When we learn how to do that, it becomes all too easy to do that with sin. Something that that we've transgressed in, maybe against a brother, maybe it's just between us and God, and we're just not quite ready to deal with that yet. We're not ready for the consequences of bringing forth fruits worthy of repentance, and so we rationalize it, we put it off, we procrastinate, and all the while what we're doing is we're compartmentalizing it. Now, whenever one of those close calls happens, that box falls off the shelf and the box comes open and all those things come out and we think, oh, oh man, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad it didn't happen now. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of these things. And then slowly but surely, we ease back into thinking, well, it's okay now. I'm going to do that next week. I'm going to do that next month or I'm going to do that next year. Huh? That's pretty accurate, is it not? And what I'm telling you is that if we really understood that we don't have long to live, we would stop compartmentalizing sin. We would understand that we're going to be held accountable for every idle word, Matthew 12, verses 36 through 37. Remember, without spot? Yes, the Lord is going to hold us accountable, Jesus said, for every idle word. I'd take my speech a little more seriously, and I'd probably say a little bit less. I'd make sure that the words that I use are good for edification. I'd, I'd be mindful of that. I'd give an account for every lie. You know, Christians get adept at not technically lying, but deceiving too many times. I say, well, I didn't lie about it. And no, but you caused that person to believe something that was not true, and you know it. You crafted your words in such a way that you would not technically lie, but you would lead them down a path of delusion. That's deception. That's sinful. We, we would be a lot more sensitive to that if we knew that we were about to meet our Maker. Yes, we would. 
You know, Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, Whoever covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes his sin will have mercy. Yes, we would be, we would have this glaring realization of separation from God. See, that's one of those things, that compartmentalization, we don't, when, when we know we've got something that needs to be taken care of, we just don't let ourselves think about that distance, that separation from God. But Isaiah 59 and verses 1 and 2, your sins and your transgressions have separated you from me. And we feel that when we are in a situation of terror. I remember during that period in my life that I spoke of Sunday when I was caught up in worldliness and, and the pursuit of all these temporal things and, and wasn't really spiritually minded. I, I was living a worldly life. I, I was really out of duty. I was still going to church, but I was not faithful to God. It was during the holidays that I'd gone back to Oklahoma to be with my family and my brother and his wife were there uh, uh, visiting. We, all, we both lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area at the time. And it, and it was after the holidays were over, my, we, we were all going to uh, go back. Uh, I was going to uh, follow my brother and sister-in-law back in, in kind of a caravan fashion. But, but first, my mom wanted to run into town and return some gifts for the grandkids. And I had ran into Oklahoma City to see some friends. And as I was coming home, there was a horrible wreck on the little two-lane highway that went into my hometown. And I was running late. Imagine that. And uh, I just knew my brother was going to be upset with me. So I was trying to get around that wreck so I didn't get held up and, and, and make myself even later. And as I, I went around the wreck, there was this crumpled up car that you couldn't hardly even recognize. But as I got alongside of it, I saw my sister-in-law standing outside the car with blood running down her face. My kindergarten age niece on the ground and someone was doing CPR on her. And that had to have been my mom in the driver's seat with gauze around her face soaked in blood. And I had never had a feeling so at loss as that. And as I pulled up in front of her car and I ran back and sat next to her, I really didn't think she was probably going to make it to the hospital. And she lived and my niece lived and I, I'm telling you I can't even believe the answered prayers in that. But here's the point. As I sat next to her and held her hand, I realized that my prayers wouldn't go no farther than the top of that car. And I said to myself, I will never let that happen again. I had never felt separation from God the way I felt it that day. And I want to tell you, that is what we would be so keenly aware of if we knew that we only had days to live. Why can't we let that rush in now? Are you separated from God? I tell you, the first thing you would need to do is take care of that. Take care of that. And, and, and we would be willing to give up anything anything that would get in our way of being in fellowship with God. We wouldn't let anything hold us back. We'd forget pride. Maybe you haven't obeyed the gospel because someone else wants you to, and you don't want to admit that they're right about what the Bible says about that. Who cares who's right? You know what you need to do. Oh, you'd forget about that pride. And you would take care of whatever you needed to take care of. I vividly remember in those first few days after the diagnosis, my father-in-law was already so sick he could barely get out of bed. 
and, and he, he, wanted, he wanted the phone because he needed to make a phone call. We didn't know who he was calling, and he called his best friend. He's one of the elders there at 84th Street now. They golf together every week, a couple of times a week. And I, I wish you could have known my father-in-law. He was such a tender, kind, sweet man. And I mean, I, I couldn't think of anything that this man would ever need to make right with God. But he called his best friend and had to tell him that there had been a few times that he didn't quite put the honest score on the scorecard. And I thought, I hope that's the worst thing I got to take care of when that day comes, you know. But, you know, there, there's some of these things like this that we might kind of think, oh, yeah, yeah. But you know what? There was no laughing about it with my father-in-law. It, it wasn't a funny thing to him because he knew what he had done. And what I'm saying is that there's no stone we'd leave unturned. So the question is, what stone do you need to overturn tonight? What do you need to get out there and take care of tonight? Because you're dying. You're terminal. And that's the first thing that we would need to do is to repent of our sins and take care of that. And if you haven't obeyed the gospel, that's where you'd need to start. But that's what we would do. And you know, secondly, if I were dying, I would let go of the petty differences that, that we sometimes allow to come between us and brethren, family. I would forgive my neighbor and I would pursue. I would pursue reconciliation with those that I've been divided from. You know, uh, as I, I think about these relationships in Genesis chapter 13, in Genesis chapter 13 and in verse 8, Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. We need to understand the gift and the value of having brothers and sisters that God's blessed us with that sticketh closer than a brother in many cases. Abraham understood the value of that. And here's the thing. Relationships become much more valuable when we see their end, don't they? Have you ever experienced that? Someone you've been divided uh, from because of hurt feelings or something that was done wrong and you haven't spoken to them in years and, and it's awkward around them and then you get the news that they don't have long to live. Or maybe you find out that they just passed away. And, and have you ever had that feeling of, oh, man, that, that really wasn't that big a deal. I, I really hate that I wasted that time. I, I, I wish I, wish I would have worked that out with them. I felt that before. And it is not worth it. But we think that we have more time. And so, so many brethren are hurt and they're wounded and they're holding grudges over things that really aren't that big a deal in the whole scheme of things. And if we could only know that we don't have long, let's mend that relationship Let's let those things go. What can we let go of? What can we take on the chin? So many family members that are estranged from one another. I see so many Christians who are in just horrible situations with in-laws. Just caustic and poisonous relationships. Bitter and, and divided from one another. And people suffering because of those. You know, a, a, a lot of people make jokes about in-laws, and I, I don't think that's something to joke about. 
Now, the book of Ruth shows us what a godly person does with an in-law. We need to value our in-laws. The person that we love more than anyone else in this world that we've committed our life to, that's their family. We owe them honor and respect and forgiveness. We owe giving them some space and, and, and a break because we need them sometimes too. But we can be so harsh with in-law relationships. You know, I have to admit that in, early in our marriage, I was one of those son-in-laws that I thought that I had to compete with my father-in-law for my wife's heart and for her respect. He was a preacher, I was a preacher, and I had to prove that I was better than him, you know, that my way was the right way of doing it and not her dad's way. And it kills me that I was so immature about that. And I know that he must have felt that from me. And we were as different as night and day, but he was so patient with me. And I would be critical of the way that he handled things and, and just, just so many things like that. And really what it was, as I look back on that, it was an insecurity because my wife treasured her dad. And you know, I needed to thank him and honor him that he built a relationship with his daughter that helped her appreciate men and respect me. She wasn't a man-hater to a large degree because of the man her dad was and the way that he had time to show her affection and to show her the kind of man that a man ought to be. I owe him my life because I live a blessed life married to a girl like that. And I am so thankful to God that he gave me the opportunity to sit by his bedside and to apologize. But you know, we don't all get that opportunity to say, I'm sorry. Guys, don't do that. Find the good, look for the good, and lift up your father-in-law in the eyes of your wife. He deserves that. You know, I just got a son-in-law. <laughs> And I've said all through these years, I'm probably going to get paid back. So far, I haven't. He's a dream. I don't know why I got such a good son-in-law with the, with the immature way I treated my father-in-law, but, but I at least was able to tell him I'm sorry. And he was so gracious. He acted like he didn't even notice, you know. And it wasn't that he was perfect. I, you know, my father-in-law was an avid OU, University of Oklahoma fan. And if you're an Alabama fan, you're like, oh, you know. I went to Oklahoma State, so that'd be kind of be like Auburn in Alabama, okay? And all he wanted to talk about was OU, and I thought, why are you doing that? You know how I feel about that team. And, and, and I thought, he's just goading me, you know? He's trying to irritate me, and I, I read everything in that negative way. But my, my point is that he had his idiosyncrasies, but you know what? I wasted almost 10 years that I could have learned so much from him. And I'm thankful that I have his, his studies, his Bible classes, and, and his writings, his articles that, that I'm able to learn from, but how I wish I could just sit down and ask him some questions. Now, wasted time, don't do that. Young ladies, don't be insecure 
about how your mother-in-law fixes something, ask her to show you how. Show her honor. She deserves that. She raised your husband. She needs some credit. She didn't do everything right, and she won't, and you won't either. But she deserves some honor. You see, these are petty things that we let ourselves get divided from. And I want you to think about it in this, term, in, in this sense. You see, differences can be seen to be a whole lot more insignificant when we start thinking about eternity. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, in verses 21 through 26, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. I want you to think about that. Angry with his brother without a cause. You say, oh yeah, but Brett, I've got a cause. Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what she said to my husband? Or do you know what he said to... I want you to imagine this. You're standing before Jesus Christ, the judge of heaven and earth, who was slapped in the face, spat upon, a crown of thorns around his head, blindfolded and struck in the head, nailed to a cross, mocked again and again. And you're going to explain to him that you had a cause for anger because did you see the way that she looked at me, Lord? Are you really going to use that? Jesus said, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, I want, you to, I want you to seriously think, do you have a cause to present before the Lord based on how he handled the way people treated him? We need to, we need to rethink our cause and what's divided us and got us embittered with one another. Brethren, there's a bigger cause than me. That's the problem. That's the real issue is, is when we're, we've got our feelings out on our sleeve, we're wanting to make it all about me. And we become so, everything's personal. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. It's about you in the sense that He died to redeem you from your sins. But from that point on, as Paul said, I'll no longer live unto myself, but unto Him who died for me. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. And once you start doing that, you're not going to even notice some of the things that people otherwise let divide them. Yes, we would take care of those things, and we would make sure that we didn't allow ourselves to be eaten up with it. You know, thirdly, if I knew that I was dying, I would be repulsed by things that are worldly and dangerous. I would see the danger in those things because they're all a trap to try to get me to sin again and to have something in my heart that I've got to make right with God to try to create habits like that. There is so much worldliness all around us in Proverbs chapter 4 and in verse 23, the wise man tells us, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. You know that word keep means to guard. It, it means you need to protect what comes in and uh, what, what goes into your heart. We've got we've to set up a custom station, if you will. You're not coming in here. Song, movie, thought, idea, Words, images on the internet. 
You're not coming in unless you're vetted. Stop right there. Let me take a look at the credentials. We need to be more serious about what we allow ourselves to think about. And, and we can become so lax because the worldliness around us and mu movies and music and social media on, in sports and in every facet, corruption and, and immodesty and impurity and sexuality is in everything. And, and if we're not careful, we become numb to it. And we don't realize that it is working on us and eating on us from the inside out. And that's one of the reasons that when we start thinking about not having long to live, we, there's something that just doesn't feel right. And, and I believe to a large degree, it's, it's just the influence of all of that impurity that's around us. I, I think that we'd get a whole lot more serious about what we let ourselves watch and think about and take part in. You know, in Proverbs 23 and in verse 7, he says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. In Matthew 5 and in verse 28, that if a man looks at a woman to lust for her, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. There is rampant immodesty all around us in everything that we see. Men, we've got to learn how to bounce the eyes. We've got, we've got to learn how to be wise about where not to drive and where not to go. And, and I'm not even going to look over there. You know, in your peripheral, you, you know that you just saw something that you probably shouldn't be looking at. Don't give it a second look. Yes, we've got to understand the seriousness of all of this. But what happens is that we just, we, we get desensitized to all of this. And, and that's why we, we will hear Christians sometimes say, oh, yeah, I, yeah, that, that did have a lot, of, uh, a lot of filthy language in that movie. But, you know, that, that really doesn't bother me. I, I hear that at work. It doesn't. That's not what God says. God says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. He's saying, don't let that in your heart. The fact that you hear some of it at work doesn't mean that you need to go and drink out of the same cesspool when you go home. Why would it? Why? Oh, why? Are we willing to watch those things, to see those things, when it has such a terrible impact on us? I remember in those, in those last days, my father-in-law was also a, a classic movie buff, and, and he wanted uh, to watch one of the old movies, and, and my wife put in a, a, a VHS tape of one of the old movies. It, it might have been a DVD now, I can't remember. But right as the movie started, and it was one of the old ones, and, and right off the bat, the, the leading female star was wearing a very low-cut dress, and it was horribly immodest. You know, sometimes we think those old movies were, were so clean and so pure, and not in the way they dressed, not always. And he immediately turned his head, he said, turn that off. You know, he didn't even remember that that part was in it. He said, turn it off, I don't want to watch that. He never watched another movie after that day. After that, he asked if everybody could come in his bedroom and we could sing hymns. He wanted to just expunge that image from his mind. You know, that doesn't happen like that. That's why we've got to be so conscientious about what we allow to come into our minds. So many Christians are compromising in their entertainment. Matthew 5 and verse 8 tells us, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'm telling you, we would want our heart pure if we knew that we didn't have long to live. And, and let me suggest another thing. 
if I knew that I was dying, I would begin to see all of these temporal pursuits that we talked about Sunday, things that are not inherently sinful, but I would see them as insignificant as they really, truly are. Sports, golf, you know, uh, house remodel, career, all of these things that are, that are wholesome and, and there's nothing wrong with them, but I would understand really how empty they are in the whole scheme of things. In Luke chapter 12 and in verse 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Matthew 16 and in verse 26, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, all these things are going to be burned up. Every one of them. So, if I didn't have long to live, I wouldn't be real worried about how much more I could save. And you wouldn't either. I'd want to share what I have. I'd want to share it. I remember I was telling you my father-in-law was, was an avid OU fan. He knew every player's name, probably their parents' name, I don't know. You know how sports fans are. And uh, that first day after he received his diagnosis, I think was the first preseason game that OU played. And, and it was on TV. And so we were just trying to help him, you know, cheer him up a little bit. We said, you want to watch the game? He said, yeah, I'll turn it on. And we turned it on. We stepped out of the room to visit about a few things. And we came back in just about 20 minutes later and the TV was off. He never watched another game in those eight weeks. He didn't care didn't ask about a score. He didn't, he didn't want to know who won. He didn't even want to talk about it. He had zero interest in that. He would want to know if brother so-and-so was at church. He would ask about those who had been weak and been missing church and were they there this morning? That's all he could think about. Those are the things that we would care about. You see, we would constantly think on things above. Colossians 3 and verses 2 through 4, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And we would think on those things above because we would know that's soon going to be our home forever. I'll tell you, we would find time for things that really matter, like family and like church. We'd find time to help in that Bible class program. We'd find time to help in anything that we could do in the local church. We'd want to share what we have with others rather than spending every dime on ourselves. And hospitality? Ladies, I'm pretty sure that you wouldn't fret over how clean your house was before you had brethren over to sing and to share a meal. You would just want their company. You know that the last thing that my father-in-law was able to do and what he did until he couldn't do anything is he wrote several letters to members that he was concerned about and he knew that he wouldn't have another opportunity to reach out to them. Have you ever thought about how many people that you could reach out to that maybe was once a member of this congregation? Is there anyone that's fallen away from this congregation that you haven't spoken to in a long time that maybe you could send a postcard to, just a, a, a card or a note, a letter to let them know how much you still love them and miss them. And, and just to let them know that your heart still aches and cares about them. Can you imagine how powerful that would be? And if perhaps maybe something's going on in their life to where it would be the perfect time for that to happen. I'm convinced that if we knew that we didn't have long to live, that's what we'd be thinking about. 
How much time are we given to those things? Yes, if I knew that I was dying, finally, I would be prepared. I would get prepared. And then I would have the joy and the confidence that God intends for us to have every single day. In Matthew chapter 24, the Lord said in verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. What he's saying is, if you knew, you'd be prepared. And so I'm telling you, I'm coming. Get prepared. Yes, if I knew that I was dying, I would know. I need to be prepared. I need to do whatever I've got to do to be prepared. And you know what would happen as a result of that? If I took care of every sin, if I pursued reconciliation that everyone that I could pursue it with, if I let go and surrendered all the, all the foolish, carnal, temporal things of this life and focused on the work of the Lord and I got prepared, you know what would happen as a result of that? I would have that bulletproof confidence in my salvation. And as a result of that, I would live every day with abundant joy because I would know where I'm going to be soon. And I would rejoice in that hope. And people would see me joyful in the midst of terrible adversity. They would say, that guy's dying and he's happier than he's ever been. Yeah. And you know what? We could live that way today. Because our Lord... Our home is in heaven, Philippians 1, 21 through 23. We would be able to say, as John did in Revelation 22 and in verse 20, even so, come Lord Jesus, I'm ready now. We would not fear death. We, we might have some trepidation about what's it going to be like going through that process, but, but what's on the other side would be welcome. Is that where you are tonight? That's what I want to leave you with. What would you need to do? How would you live differently if you knew that you didn't have long to live? Well, I'm telling you right now, you don't. That's what we need to learn from the Bible. That's what was so profound about the song is that that's exactly what the Bible is saying. It has been said that he who would teach men to die would teach them to live. Isn't that what Jesus did? He taught us to die, to put, our, put to death the old man, and to truly live for the first time. You can do that. You can do that tonight. What do you need to do? You need to obey the gospel? You can do that. You can come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You can, be, you can come forward tonight and confess before this audience your faith in Him as the Son of God. You can repent of your sins. You can be baptized in water for the remission of sins. You can do all of that because it's all ready. We're waiting for you to make that decision. And if as a child of God, maybe there's something you need to repent of, we will pray with you. We'll pray for you. Maybe you've brought reproach on this church. No one wants their pound of flesh here. We want you to be right with God. We'll rejoice with you and with the angels in heaven if you'll be restored to the Lord. Why would you leave here and not do that? You don't have long to live. Who do you need to pick up the phone and call when you leave here this evening? Who do you need to stop by and see that you've been divided from? Who do you need to speak to in this congregation that you need to make some things right with? 
Why would you put that off? Take care of that tonight and live like you were dying. Whatever your need is, please come forward and make that known as we stand and sing the invitation song.